Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Today's episode of Explain to Shane is a continuation of my conversation with Brent Orell on technology and workforce. During a live event in the AEI Auditorium with the students in the 2023 Summer Honors Program. In this episode, we broaden the conversation from the particulars of automation to how humanity and Americans will relate to technology in the future. We hope you enjoy and give a listen to part one wherever you listen to Explain the Shame. So that's how I get, that's my response or my solution to the, tri, to the trilemma. The solution is not either to stop try to stop technology, pause it, stop it, uh, regulate it to death, um, because I don't think, and Shane, I would like you to comment on this, I don't think that's possible. Uh, Technology is going to do what it does, uh, and it's going to get better, uh, and we can either capture that value or not capture that value, but it's going to happen. So we can't stop it. We need to adapt to it. And it's in this double helix that we, it, we can kind of build our strategy around adaptation um, for the future, which I think is really the answer. To that point, I think the Eric Schmidt book um, with Henry Kissinger, and I always feel bad, I forget the last gentleman's name, who probably did most of the writing. Daniel, whatever his last name yeah. is, uh, did, did a great job of saying, this is just our next level of humanity. Like, we need to stop thinking about it as a technology or the scary part of the artificial intelligence concept. It really is this gigantic leap forward that we are doing as you know, the human race. Mm-hmm. So I think when you put it in that context, it gets a lot more interesting. You want to study it more. You want to learn. You want to figure out how you can take advantage of it. And it takes some of the fear factor out, or we need to do something to kind of dissuade that fear factor. Mm-hmm. And um, I spend a lot of time looking at the regulations and what we're looking at and how we're going to manage this going forward, like the big uh, – uh, the letter that came out, I guess, probably a month and a half ago, that's like, stop. We need to, we need to just put a hard stop on that. And you look at everybody who signed it, and I'm like, how many of these people just, A, are, own their companies? Their CEOs can take a stop. They want to pause? Go for it. You just pause your company up, right? Mm. Or yeah. you, then the, you know, the, the Senate hearing, which was interesting in that the senators actually showed up and seemed to have some semblance of understanding of what they were talking about. So kudos to them for that. But the, the whole idea of like the first thing was from gigantic corporations, you know, IBM being in the room. And, you know, I love ChatGPT. OpenAI is doing a great job. Backed by Microsoft, who's one of the number one licensing groups in the world, was like, let's immediately license this and figure out how to take it down that software chain. And that's, that's a, it, one way to look at it. But I think when we look at it in this, the same idea, again, going back to what Eric Schmidt and, you know, the book is talking about is, we're actually, we've hit Moore's law. We have hit the point where compute can do as much as it can with current com- computers. And we need to rethink the whole process. And uh, any of you guys who are NVIDIA fans, you know, they're now hitting, you know, they're, they're at the trillion mark. And what they're thinking about is how we have to rethink compute completely. And what that will allow is not just big companies to be able to do artificial intelligence. It will allow you to borrow time against machines or actually own smarter machines that don't have to be as expensive to get this done. So I think we are on a trajectory for this to be life-enhancing at a very minimum, if you know, not uh, just very fascinating. But I do think we need to maybe help it with guardrails along the way. I don't know that I would certainly wouldn't go the heavy regulation route, but mm-hmm. I think that's sort of the that's the area that I'm really focusing on. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to see 
where you see the net outcome of mm -hmm. this in the workforce and what we need to be thinking about in the guidance standards regulatory part of that equation. Yeah, and I, I, I think it would be, I'd be very interested in hearing from you, like, when you think about the range of proposals, of regulatory approaches and proposals in Europe, United States, elsewhere in the world, like, what are the things that we absolutely should do and what are the things that maybe that ought to not be on the table when it comes to regulating AI? Well, so right now there's a lot of work on principles. And so the two things that are, I've always been, when I think about uh, data, which people call privacy, but it's really, I think, a data governance, it's transparency. It's knowing how the information arrived there. Is it legally yours to be playing with? And then, you know, where does it get to go from there? And taking a step away from AI for a second and into this whole privacy slash data governance debate that we're having, the challenge with it is that third party. So it's one thing if you and I agree to share information or you guys agreed to share your information with AI when you join this program. But at some point, if you were in a commercial uh, agreement and you hit that third party button where you say, sure, market to me or sell, you can send things to your partners, you, you, that is out the gate. You cannot get that back. And for a long time, I was... Like, well, you know, it's buyer beware. But now I think we're at a stage where people really need to understand the transparency of the information. So the gathering of the information is really important. Uh, and it's also that we need not only just the legality around that, we need it for the apples to apples comparison. So uh, Brent and I had a really wonderful conversation with a woman from the Cleveland Clinic about the work she did during COVID on um, the healthcare, you know, elements that were coming in and how do they prioritize the people they were seeing, all the new symptoms, how did they manage this tranche of information coming forward? Well, there's protocols for that in healthcare, but not at the level that you would expect to see all the complications that came in on COVID. So she had to use what I'll just call the kind of break the glass moment where there were guidance and the FDA basically said, this is a health emergency and we'll let you go beyond what you regularly have to license or is standardized in the space to see if we can figure out and get ahead of this. And what we saw out of that was a much faster resolution into anyone who was willing to get a shot. So, um, you know, I, th I think we're going to see a lot in that space. What I'm worried about with Europe is they believe in principles, but in the precautionary principle. They are a do nothing before do something. And when Talk we think about the precautionary principle, what does that mean? So the precautionary principle means that you think of all the horrible things that could happen before you think of the good things. That's the easiest way to think about the precautionary principle. And then you regulate for all the horrible. Yes. And yeah. then you let risk, you know, put, lull you into a nightmare every night before you go to bed rather than waking up thinking about how you become a better society. So I'm sorry, very cynical about that. But I am very worried because we are currently seeing the this particular administration is being very permissive in letting Europe run the operation on this. And I think that that is a means we put our foot forward on the precautionary principle and we get away from the way we do things mostly here in the United States is we are we're not risk adverse. We are risk sensitive. People don't like to get sued. Um, we sue too much in this country, as far as I'm concerned, but that's part of our way that we do contracts. So you need to do a risk evaluation and a risk balance when you do something to say, okay, how, how much positive, net positive is this that is beyond just making a profit? And who benefits from this and how many customers can I gain or who gets to be you know, the beneficiary of this? What is the downside risk on that? And then on the downside risk, we're seeing the challenges of when we're building the models 
that um, there are people that don't get included. And that goes back to my, a little bit of my point on data is there are people that just were excluded. They weren't part of the modeling early on. So we need to think about that. We need to be, you know, think about the ethics around that. And, and that's because we are at a point where we can build really from zero. We can decide that we want to build this from today forward. So let's have principles that are guidance principles in this process. And so we have can manage those risks going forward around you know, ethical behavior, um, things that are being omitted that we can add into the, the data. But it's also because you want the data sets to be good and pure and usable. If you're using really crummy data, you end up with really bad results. So that has its own market driver where the market's going to, it's just going to drive you into the ground. And so why go through all that? So, so I was just going to add on to this that, you know, the, uh, McKinsey came out with a study on like a bunch of things related to AI, including employment, but it also had just this fascinating chart that showed if you go early on AI, if you, if you aggressively pursue it, you get a very significant bump in productivity and growth uh, in your economy. If you wait and go late on it, you don't get anything, right? You could still try, you, you, could, you could deploy the same technologies later and not get anything for it. And I, that's what I think the people who operate on the precautionary principle are missing, which is the, the, the loss, the unseen, the dog that doesn't bark, you know, uh, that, 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 that unaccounted for loss. It's like we see all these risks and we want to manage these risks. But we're, we've got this other huge risk over here, which is if we don't do it, uh, people are going to be poorer, sicker, uh, have less opportunity, uh, you name it. A lot, there are a lot of downsides to not acting. So. Which is uh, one of the things that we learned, again, speaking to this doctor at the Cleveland Clinic, of the things that when she tried to apply these lessons that she learned during COVID to other uh, health risks, there are the guidance isn't there for her to take the same risk that she could with COVID. So she talked about just the importance of you know, the, the major uh, kill, you know, things that uh, you know, heart cancer. It, why we can't take the same things that she learned during this process and then learn to implement them forward. And it's because we're dealing with old guidance and old rules. Mm -hmm. So we need to really rethink a lot of that. Um, and then the other one, and this is the one that are, people are really entangled in right now, is explainability. So how did we get there, right? You know, the, the black box element of you threw this information in there and it came out with something that made sense, but we don't know how we went, we got from A to B, right? And so with, uh, you know, where I always, when I talk to people in general about like, why are you afraid of AI? I'm like, are you scared of a calculator? Like, does this calculator, do you use one? And they usually are like, yeah. I'm like, well, we can do the backwards math. And you can show your work if you needed to when it comes to a calculator. On the AI, mm, to a point. And sometimes it just gets ahead of you. But there's also an element I really love, I'm reading a ton of books on this, is that's kind of human nature too, is sometimes you do that leap and you don't know why. It's just that you've got iterative in your process and all of a sudden what makes sense to you is something that may not have made sense a year earlier, but it's because you have trained your brain through it and you may have not actually cognitively thought through all the processes you did there. So that explainability is going to be a bit of a hitch, I think, mm -hmm. that we're going to have to manage, is that people want the machines to be able to explain everything. Again, going back to this one book I think is worth reading is they talk about how they put all of the elements that are in chemical compounds in pharmaceuticals into a computer and just said go. 
right? They didn't tell it that it had to solve the common cold or this or that. And it came back with all these things that people had never thought about. They were like, we've always used this for liver functions. And it turns out it's actually really good at something else. And it was because the machine didn't have the trained human bias of a human training it to tell it what to think that allowed it the freedom to come back with very very different and varied uh, answers on things. So I think the explainability has um, is going to be a problem because as humans, we want to understand that. But I think if we allow the, the training models to move forward, we could come up with some really interesting stuff. And it's so tricky because oftentimes the designers of the <laughs> algorithms and databases can't really give you a definitive answer, even the people who built the thing. Um, so it's like... How, how much transparency or do we need into those questions in order to trust um, what it's doing? So. so the other thing you talked about is, um, and you're talking about in workforces, how do we deal with the development and deployment cycles? So, mm-hmm. and, and we're seeing a big shift in how, especially corporations are spending money in this space. And so just sort of some thoughts on, if you had to go to your CEO and say, I think we can... We, you know, how much of it has to be data-driven that you're like, I think if we put X in here, we're going to see Y at the end, or is this people dealing with hunches? Are we dealing with certain industries that are getting there faster than others? Yeah, it's, a, it, uh, it's probably, in terms of my own work, kind of the area that I think is in most in need of attention, and so we're, we're working on it. But our labor market information systems in this country that attempt to project future economic demand and skill demands, uh, not very good. Surprise, surprise, not very good. So, uh, and now we're entering into this chapter where it's gonna change even faster, right? So um, working with a team, uh, labor market economist at NYU and some other people around developing concepts for basically how can we use AI to estimate the impact of AI? to use those massive data sets um, that can create the connections between the inputs to tell us what the outputs might be in terms of impact on skill demand. Um, And so that is, is, I think, vital work. It's probably the most important work on the labor side is simply to get, we're never going to get a precise, uh, you know, uh, sort of read on what's going to happen, but we can do. I think we can do better than we are currently doing, and I think that part of that is to have the technology, and then the other uh, to analyze the information, and then the other part is to make sure that we're applying it in a local and regional context, because every labor market is different. Everybody has different industries. Everybody has different institutions uh, operating within their their labor market that will be affected differently by the technology. So we need to have better technology and it needs to be decentralized so that we can get a better handle on the changing skill needs. How are we doing on time? I was gonna to go to questions. Okay. Yep. Okay, all right. Uh, why don't we, let's start in the back here and then we've got a we're mic running, so we'll get you a mic here in just a second. There's one over here too on right. the left. Hi, thank you both for sharing your insights on this topic. Can you introduce yourself and tell us? Yeah, my name is Aiden. Uh, I'm a senior at the University of Chicago. I'm just curious if you could touch on some of the intellectual property concerns that are raised by ChatGPT and other forms of generative AI, especially in relation to the data sets that they are trained on. 
Yeah, so I have been obsessed, and I'm actually having dinner with a group of Japanese officials tonight, that the Japanese said, go ahead and train on anything you want. We're not going to be holding you to copyright or, or IP. Or, and I was like, the Japanese, what? <laughs> so that's going to be the first question I'm going to ask them tonight. Uh, it is um, an interesting question. There are models that you can use. And so I actually, if you want to go through the um, podcast, I think our last podcast was actually with the, the former chief technology officer at the recording industry of America and talked about the fake Drake uh, situation. It's been a challenge for the music industry for a long time just because there's only so many notes and so many you know rhythms that you can have there. But now that you have the ability to train, um, so I was like, so what's the music industry thinking about this? And so the the licensed answer to that is if Warner Brothers Music or Universal would like you to b basically buy a license into their catalog and then you can do, use tool sets off of that catalog. So there's, there's a solution set to that potential question, right, for one industry. But it's a really good question because it's going to bring a lot of things uh, into question about where does copyright happen. Like we just saw a Supreme Court case, right, with the, um, the Prince... The, the photo that was taken of Prince that was Annie Warhol made an element of it, and um, Vanity Fair put it on the cover, but they didn't actually have rights to it. So this isn't just an AI question, but as I say about everything about the Internet, the Internet is not the problem. The Internet is life on steroids, right? So it's a lot of legal questions that we probably have along the way. The, the main thing will be um, training on the learning language models and if, if you have to license into those or where does the information flow come from. So um, that's a great question. I don't have an answer for you, but there's a lot of people in not only this town, but all around the world that are asking that same question. So stay tuned. So I would only add to that, that in the call center uh, example that I talked about, it's like, who owns that IP uh, around like being a really excellent call center employee that trained the model? Who owns that? It's a bunch of people whose voices were recorded that were then used to train the model, the algorithm, um, should those people be compensated for their artistry, in a sense, in dealing with angry customers? I think that's got an economic value to it, clearly does have an economic value to it. Uh, and it's an, I think it's an intellectual property question. Well, there's also you know certain things that fall within the Creative Commons, so we are managing through that as well. But it's a, it's a question I'm very curious about and following really closely. Hi, my name's uh, Ethan Pelland. I'm from Arizona State University. <laughs> so go Sun Devils. Um, so my question was about thinking about the sort of experience that we've seen with social media where at first there was a lot of optimism that, and still is some optimism that social media was a way to enhance the free flow of information, especially to places and to people who either didn't have the means to access it or their governments prevented them from accessing it. How do we ensure that some of the same concerns, such as China having the firewall and having such a controlled social media environment, that the AI is used to enhance the free flow of information and accurate information to people, rather than uh, having it be used to stifle the free flow of information and, or possibly to misinform people? Good question. Um, so it doesn't, it falls way beyond AI. So I actually run the um, AEI online content project. So there's a website if you want to take a look at that. And we're looking at this question very closely. There's been uh, two Supreme Court cases that were actually around Section 230, which didn't, which were sent back to the lower court. And there's two more that they're probably coming up this year. And the, 
The challenge for that, especially for um, areas where the internet is not abundant, is you end up with something like a meta Facebook being your main element of where you get information. There's actually going to be an interesting case because Canada, Meta just said they're not going to put news feeds into the Canadian, uh, you know, their, their Canadian news feeds up in their Canadian um, flow up in Canada because they're being sued by a bunch of the the media companies. And the question is, who needs who more, right? You know, so do do I don't get my news feeds from my social media, so I find that fat. Well, that's not true. I love Twitter, if, but I don't. Yeah, so the, so I do I do look at that, but I generally do the click through. So what what happens, and where are there places that maybe? in Latin America or, or in Africa that they're not able to do this because they're basically going to meta for this information feed. Um, that is, our, artificial intelligence could possibly help that, but the key question there is actually a content question, not an artificial intelligence question, is, you know, who owns, goes back to IP, to, you know, like, who owns the rights to serve that information up to you and, you know, if they decide not to serve it to you, where does, you know, where does the harm happen in that? So, again, that you're like on the leading edge of a conversation. Actually, right before this, I was talking to a friend of mine who's over in Kenya. And it's interesting because she had really interesting point of view on articles I had not even heard of. She said, well, the, you know, the Irish uh, privacy is, group is doing a whole bunch of things. And I was like, I haven't seen that article. And she's like, oh, it's all we're talking about here in Kenya. And she's an a, a IP privacy lawyer. And I was like, can you send me, you know, just send the link to me. So it's interesting how... We have it happen to us here, even though we feel like we have the free, free flow of information that they just don't, they assume we're just not interested in certain things. And so it just gets lower in the demand. And so we don't see it come across. China is always going to be its own challenge. They, they have that firewalls real. Um, they, you, you know, they decide what you can and can't see. And if it is not something they want to do as much as you might try to VPN around it, that eventually is not going to work out in your favor. So um, it's an ongoing question, and um, I mean, I think the, the the ability to democratize information with the internet has been key. I think the bigger question is actually the misinformation, disinformation challenge that we have, and we're trying to get ahead of that. And that's where AI actually can be really beneficial: is trying to call that out and um, quarantine it, or you know, whatever it stake it is left at that point. Yeah, at least identify it as misinformation. So. Yeah, but that but that sounds easier than it is actually to do. So yeah. there is that. We had a question over here, a couple of them, sorry. Um, you talked a little bit about this, but I was just wondering as a current college student, is there still value in approaching the fields and majors that AI dominates in? So is a math degree still worth it for the cost of education, or should we focus more on developing those skills that AI still struggles with? So I, I would say uh, the... Uh, the worst possible answer is that we don't know. Uh, and uh, anybody who tells you that they have seen into this future and can t definitively tell you, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, it's, it, uh, we just, it's, uh, the technology is changing too fast, too quickly, and it's, it's beginning to roll out into the rest of the economy and reshape the rest of the economy as well. So we don't, we don't know, and that's why I really, uh, what I fall back to is that you need a balanced portfolio of knowledge and skills. You need, uh, you do need an understanding of uh, science, of the, uh, particularly the principles behind, that, that stand behind AI, 
uh, and how AI operates. You don't have to be a data scientist. You don't have to be an AI scientist. You just have to kind of have a, a, working, uh, a working person's grasp of um, what the technology is and how it works. And then on the other side, you need to make sure that you have built up uh, the, these more humane capacities so that no matter, uh, you know, in the, in the arts and in uh, the social sciences uh, or in the law or whatever it is, so that you've got both of those things because it's, it's in that combination that you have, that you develop the capacity to then flex and adapt to the way that the technology is going to reshape the job market. Always good to be smart. Always good to be smart. Yeah, I, I the I ran a piece, or I had a piece published this morning on this question: is is the bachelor's degree still worth it? And the answer is yes, it's still worth it. Uh, a bachelor's degree still returns twice as much over a lifetime as somebody with less than that. Uh, uh, and at the same time, we don't really know how that how the bachelor's degree over the long haul is going to interact with the technological change. To take that question down a level, there is a program actually being supported by um, you know, the U.S. government that's pushing out, doing more, more of this in community colleges. So the idea that you have to have a, a, a you know, four-year degree or up to do some of the things that you currently do in this space, we could be teaching at a, a much... Uh, earlier level that would not be at the expense and then you could always like graduate into the higher elements and so getting those is and I have a friend who's doing this they're doing a lot of work down in Texas specifically in healthcare because there's a lot of focus on that in Houston and it's it just makes sense because so there you know it's just fundamental coding that you know they maybe need to be teaching almost at the grade school junior high high school level so we're seeing actually a lot of these things go down into the earlier stage of education rather than waiting to get to a point where you're actually trying to make a career decision you, know, you should have these skill sets earlier on um jake bakey st anselm college my question is about what skills are teachable to adults um so i'm a writing tutor at my college and um you know most of the people who come to us is just for a brush up or an essay they've got due for a class but sometimes um people go to college with a fundamental lack of writing skills and I worry that it might be too late. Um, so is a, is a skill like writing that normally requires um, essentially years of education to be good at um, teachable to adults? It's never too late. I mean, it isn't. I mean, it's, it's never too late, it get, but it gets harder every year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it would be better if we could make sure that those are fundamentals that people are taught when their brains are sponges when they're young and not everybody has the advantage of that but nobody is ever at a full disadvantage that's actually what i think is one of the most amazing things about the internet you know how many things i mean everybody in here probably you guys go to youtube before you go somewhere else to learn something and you know where i'm actually going to call somebody to fix <laughs> one of my former research assistants came over and helped me fix a plumbing issue. He's like, you are not paying a plumber. And I was like, all right. You know, so we came over and we watched YouTube and we fixed it. Uh, but so that's, you know, there's certain things that, you know, you probably have had an advantage of knowing since you're very young. The fact that you're teaching, thank you for doing that. That's, it's a very important thing to pass on to people that may not have had that, those skills. I mean, I've, 
there's certain teachers I had that I wish I hadn't had, and I had others I wish would have taught every class that I had because of their teaching skills were so much better. But I think that's one of the beauties of all the different things that we have in front of us is that it's, it's just never too late. I mean, people can always continue to learn, so. Uh, and I would, I would add on to that by saying uh, excellent writing is really a product of excellent thinking, right? So you're, it's not, uh, these are, uh, it's that critical thinking capacity that then feeds writing ability. Now, keep that idea in your head and remember that while ChatGPT currently produces some pretty bland stuff in terms of, you know, it's, you can work with it, but it's not great. It's not beautiful writing, right? Uh, that's going to get better over time. And this is really a tough one for me because I really love to write, and it's something I have worked on very hard across my entire life to get better at. Um, and I wonder whether it's going to become like the, um, the, 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 the sculpture of the Renaissance. You know, like, it's beautiful. Uh, it's it really wonderful. Uh, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I have chat to do all the writing for me. You know, um, so is it worth for most people? If you're not going to be a novelist or a journalist or something like that, and make writing like your fundamental, uh, the fundamental of your career, you know, is it really worth investing all of that time, energy, and effort into becoming a great writer uh, when the technology can do that for you? You have this external brain that is going to be able to do, has all of the knowledge and a lot of the skill that you're that you're seeking. And last question over here in the corner, and then I know we're at time. Thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor to be the last question. Uh, my name is Mikhail Mikhail, also known as Mikhail, also known as Misha. I go to the University of Florida. And as uh, machine learning, AI, and algorithms are becoming ubiquitous, uh, kind of even bleeding into the hiring process, a lot of stat uh, statist statisticians are uh, trying to define what exactly is fairness. And there are two trains of thought. It's either equal calibration or error parity. But I would love to ask, what do you define as fairness? And is, is fairness even relevant when it comes to that? Well, I think the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission would say, yes, it is very relevant. We can't have algorithms that, by design or default, um, not intentional, but have a disparate impact on uh, uh, identifiable populations. You know, it's like the whole uh, unprofessional hair thing on Google. You know, like you type, when they had that problem where you type in unprofessional hair and you get people with afros. And uh, that was a product of the implicit biases of the people who built the technology. And so things like that have to be tested for. Now, having said that, we don't have an unbiased process right now in hiring. We have a very biased process in hiring. Uh, and so it's kind of like, uh, yes, there's a, there's a danger of bias in these uh, programs that are being used for HR purposes. Um, but we have to very carefully weigh which is worse, you know, the, the existing way that we have to do it or this new way, or are they bad in different ways and then mitigate against whatever the problem is. So. Uh, Shane talked about lawsuits. Lawsuits are an extremely important part of the regulatory process because they, they signal to the market 
this is what you can't do, and get, or if you do do it, you're going to get sued and lose a lot of money. Just to show you how far we've come on fairness, it used to be that if a female walked into a bank and asked for a loan and she was declined and they were told why, they said, because you're a woman. So we, we've come a long way, but our challenge now is those unintended biases that we don't know and then get coded in because we just there's a lot of assumption in code, which seems crazy because it's code, but um, so we need to train ourselves as humans to think about what we're doing in that space and, and openly. But so yeah, there's there's still a lot of running room there, but it's we need to be cognitive of what how we're doing that in the system. Thank you all for your attention. Um, I hope you will follow up with any questions that you yeah, have. Absolutely. Um, we appreciate, appreciate you being part of this program and you're eventually all gonna be uh, listeners on a podcast. <laughs> Great, right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.